Speaking of the internet, I did a survey recently, just a few months ago, regarding the use of a smartphone. How many of you have a smartphone? How many of you are using your smartphone as I ask that question? <laughs> a few, right? When I address young audiences, I now tell them to turn on their Bible, and if it's a really young audience, they don't even laugh because they, they don't deal much with paper anymore. Well, the survey said that the average iPhone user unlocks it 80 times a day. You say, that sounds a little on the low side for me. <laughs> Let me do the math with you. If we assume that a person is conscious and not in the shower for 16 hours a day, what that means is they're unlocking their phone every 12 minutes they're awake. Yeah! And again, for some of us, including me, that feels a little light. Five times an hour, every minute you're awake. You think that might have an effect on your relationship with God? Let me ask you this. Does it have an effect on your relationship with others? I said to my wife, Thank God she's in children's ministry right now, so I'll tell you this story. <laughs> I said to her last night, you're on your phone too much. And she said, really? You're going to tell, tell me that? And so began the exposure of rank hypocrisy in my life. I was just kidding, but I definitely got a clear reaction. It's tough. Eugene Peterson has said that worship is the time we set aside to give to attend to the presence of God, not because we can't do it at any other time, but that we are so incredibly inwardly self-focused and self-interested that if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves to attend to the presence of God, we won't be able to do it at any other time either. And that's true, and that's why we're here. And thank you for being here this morning to give attendance, to attend to the presence of God. This morning, I'm going to show you the single story we're told from the childhood of Jesus. His example is so radically different from my day-to-day -day experience that I find it sobering. Even at 12 years old, Jesus has much to teach me and much to correct in me. Look with me in Luke chapter 2, please. I'm in verse 41. Luke chapter 2, we're moving through the gospel of Luke. We've come to Luke chapter 2, verse 41. We're told of Jesus, if you look just, just above in verse 40, the child grew, speaking of Jesus, the Bible says the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. There were three feasts that an observant, obedient, faithful Israelite would pay attention to during the year. There was this feast of Passover, there was also the Feast of Tabernacles, and there was also Pentecost. And because of distance and money and other obligations, faithful families generally would go only to one, and regarding Passover, Tradition said that men were required to go, but women were not. But what do we see in this verse? Who's going? The parents, Mary and Joseph. That tells you a little bit about the depth of their faith. 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Ever been there? Did you ever get left anywhere? I had a good friend who was left at a gas station on the interstate. And it was about two hours before they came back to pick him up. They were, they were about 70 miles out before they decided to look in the back seat and notice that he wasn't there. His parents are elderly now. He still talks to them about it. It's going to haunt them forever. So you have a family filled with faith, and we've seen that certainly in Luke's gospel. Matthew tells us Joseph's experience. These are two people in the parents of Jesus, Mary, his mother, and his guardian, his stepfather, because his true father was God himself, are obeying faithfully, and they're going to Passover to look forward in this sacrifice of the Passover to, amazingly, what Jesus is later going to do on the cross as the final lamb and the final sacrifice. And when it's all concluded, Jesus stayed. They went on. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Are you, are you reading this with me? Are you picking up on what it's saying here? How far did they go without him? A day. That's worse than the highway story, right? It's a day's journey, 20, 25 miles. Man. And as parents always do, I was left at church once or twice growing up. As parents always do, they had a good reason. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, there's the good reason. They went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Biblical storytelling is always lean on details, but can you imagine their emotion? How long has this taken? It's a day out, day back, and now they're searching. Look at this. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Did you catch that last part? Jesus was listening, and Jesus was what? Asking. Wow. That's big. After three days, they found Him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Him were amazed at His understanding and His answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Does that sound like a mom to you? Let's think through this a little bit. Is there a little bit of blame shifting going on here, maybe? Whose fault is this, according to Mary? It's his fault. Why'd you do this? You've broken our hearts. We've been going crazy. 
Boy, if you've ever failed your kids in some way, you know what that feels like. The most natural thing in the world is to put it on the kids. My kids have fallen over and I've scolded them. <laughs> Watch where you're going. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. Thanks, Dad. Could you help me up? It's an entirely human story, and that's the point. That's one of the things you need to see in this story. I want you to hear Jesus' answer and ask yourself a question. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Jesus, rude. Some very interesting tension in this family all of a sudden because God's doing something with His Son. Look at Jesus. He's the child you always wanted in your home. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Isn't that what you wanted for your kid? He was obedient to them. What's His mother doing? Look at the very next phrase. His mother? His mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus gets left behind in the Passover. Three days go by before He's reunited with His family. Where is He found? What is He doing? Check this out. He's learning. that blow your mind a little bit? When I was in seminary, one of my professors, Dr. Wart Russell, asked us a Christmas question. He said, when Jesus was in the manger, do you think He was pretending to be a baby? <laughs> was He in the, ma in the manger ooing and aahing and cooing and doing what babies do, all the while looking up at the dark night sky and thinking, it's a wonderful universe I've made? What do you think about that? This has the answer. For your sake, the Word that is God was always with God. That Word became flesh. And John says, John 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He wasn't pretending to be a baby. The eternal God, the Son, took on a separate and different nature. He became a man. He was always God. He became a man. There was a specific point in time when, for love of you, God stepped into human history and actually became one of us. He was weak and hungry and thirsty. Most importantly, He was tempted in every way, just as we are. His human nature felt the full weight and appeal of sinful temptation in every way, Hebrews says, just as we are with this beautiful saving grace, yet without sin. That's why He can be your Savior. And in all we're told about Jesus, this is the only time we're told anything about His childhood and the single thing that God chose to tell us about the 
childhood of Jesus is that at this point in his history, one year before he was considered under Jewish law and tradition accountable for his moral actions as a 13-year-old boy. When he was still 12, at this point, God the Son has grown and increased in wisdom, and he now knows who his true father is. And he is in his father's house, reading, listening, discussing, and answering questions about this, the Scriptures. Not the New Testament, it's not written yet. But Jesus had Scriptures. He had the law of Moses, He had the Psalms, and He had the prophets, all of them written centuries earlier, pointing to Him. And what he's doing is investing himself in his Father's Word. Even at 12, he's different and better than I am. Fully half of American Christians confess that they find difficult, they find it difficult in their day to find time to read the Bible and pray. Does that make sense to you? No guilt, let's just be honest. Do we find that difficult sometimes? Does the tyranny of the urgent and the tyranny of the smartphone bark so loudly at you that you charge into a hard world to do great things without ever hearing much from God on some days, without ever speaking much to Him in prayer except perhaps for a quiet general blessing right before you get out of the car? Help me, God, here I go. What did the Scriptures mean to Jesus? That's one of the things that Luke wants us to consider. This simple story tells me that what the Scripture, what the Hebrew Bible, all that God had given of His Word at that time had priority in the life of Jesus. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 46 blows my mind. Because Jesus had always existed, he is God. That's what John tells us so simply and clearly in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But Jesus is asking questions in the temple. What are they discussing? The Scriptures. The temple was not only a place of worship, it was also a place of instruction. And the 12-year-old child Jesus, one year prior to his social, cultural, biblical responsibility to be a moral agent of his own and to obey God on his own without the cover of his parents to excuse himself in ignorance, the 12-year-old child Jesus is, look at the order, listening and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding. His questions betrayed understanding. Teachers know this. Many, many times I've taught at the high school and usually at the college level, And a 19, 20-year-old kid will ask me a question so good that I know he knows a great deal about the subject. 
And he's not showing off. He wants to know, but the question itself tells him, this kid's pretty sharp. I got to be on my game. He's probably better at this than I am. And then they're asking him in return. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his what? His answers. Fascinating moment in the history of God. What are we to learn? The Scriptures for Jesus meant this. They had priority in His life. Jesus Himself is a human example. He is the human embodiment of these kind of Scriptures. Psalm 119, verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. What is the key to praising God with your whole heart, knowing all that God has said and all that God requires? Psalm 119 also says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. I'm listening to your word and I'm treasuring it into my heart. It's not a light reading. It's not easily forgotten. I'm setting it aside. I'm putting it in the center of my life. I'm storing it up in the very center of my being so that I might not sin against you. Amazing. And it started, Luke goes out of his way to tell us when Jesus was only 12, Psalm 119, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Jesus is your example. The Word of God had priority in His life. Also, very importantly, it set His timing. The Word of God set the timing of Jesus. That is evident to me by the question He asked His parents. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Here's how I take the question. It's not why were you looking for me at all. He's not moving out. The next verses make that clear, right? Where did they go? When this was ended and Mary's still frowning, I guarantee you she's frowning all the way home. Initially in frustration, upset with her child, later lost in contemplation of what sort of child this really is. It's a Christmas song that is almost cliche, but probably it'd be hard to write a song that is more accurate and portrays one of the human reactions to Jesus than the Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? How do you fathom that you're speaking to God? How do you fathom the 12-year-old who goes home and helps his father because he was told to do so and he takes initiative to do it and he doesn't leave the carpenter shop a mess because that's not the way his dad taught him to work? And he's never wrong in his attitudes or his actions. How do you fathom that that is God incarnate but that is also your son? And in Mary's case, you remember the day of his birth. You remember how frightened you were. You remember the desolation of not having extended family with you. You remember the initial awkwardness of having some shepherds crowd around because God had told them, the most common of workmen, where to find His own Son, the fulfillment of His greatest and best promise. Jesus gave in His humanity the person of Christ which is one person in two natures, always divine at a certain time in history, human, so that He could be both our example and our substitute, that 
person, Jesus Christ, gave priority to the Scriptures, and they also set His timing. And Luke tells us this story to put us at a juncture in Jesus' life when He begins to embrace His full identity and His mission. He knows that his life is now lived beside Mary and Joseph, and his work for now is the carpenter's son and an apprentice in that good, noble trade, but that's not where it's going to end. It said his timing. Listen to Jesus, now full grown in John chapter 5, verse 30, explain how he walks through life in perfect obedience to God. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of Him, of the one who sent me, not my own will. Are you seeing this? What is Jesus always doing? Listening to His Father. How did He do that? Did He do that only in prayer? No, He sought the Scriptures. Specifically, At the age of 12, Jesus stayed behind in the temple because in God's timing, this is when Jesus turns a corner to embrace His mission. And this is so mind-bending, I'm having a hard… I had a hard time studying it, and I cracked out the old theology books to try to encompass this amazing idea that God exists eternally as one undivided God in three persons, one of whom at a specific time in history by the Father's will and in obedience to the Father became a human being just as I am with this amazing difference, unstained by sin, tempted but sinless, so that He could be both my example and my substitute. And even then, Jesus in the fullness of His deity and His humanity, gave priority and set His timetable, set His life according to the Scriptures. Why does that matter so much? Have you ever run ahead of God? Ever just moved out on your own timing? What usually pushes that? When you step out of God's timetable, what's usually driving you? Think about that for a second. You know what it is for me? Hurting a little bit. I'm just uncomfortable. And because one of the idols of my little heart is comfort, if I'm a little bit uncomfortable, I move. Never checking with my Father whether that discomfort is guided by His hand to teach me, to guide me, to make me a blessing to others. That's what part of that song meant. When it talks about jars of clay, Paul said, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the glory would belong to God. That's the point. We are very fragile, quickly destroyed little vessels that contain a great treasure, which is the good news of Jesus, and God often designs pain and waiting and uncertainty and fear and all kinds of trouble. And one sign of genuine discipleship to Jesus is being in the Scriptures and in prayer to God to hear the Father's voice and move according to His time. Read it again. I can do nothing on my own. Man, that's wow, really? Nothing? Do you believe that? Those are Jesus' words. Do you believe what He said in that first sentence? 
That's one part of the Bible I don't believe, at least in the way I act. I prove that I don't believe it. Here's what I really believe. I can at least get started. Right? I can get started, and then I can pray God for God to come along and bless what I've begun, and it'll be great. You ever do this? Here's how I work when I'm not in step with Jesus. I'll get a good idea motivated by my own little imagination or my own desire to be comfortable. I'll rush out, work hard, start to struggle, and say, God, bless this work. And it just puts God, if God could be in an awkward position, that would be it. Because I become like one of my children asking when they ask for my help over something I never told them to do and frankly don't want them doing. God, could, Dad, could you help us? No. Stop that. Stop doing that. Who told you to do that? Seemed like a good idea at the time as one of my teenager boys had the best shirt I ever saw. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Those are the words of Jesus. That's being a disciple of Jesus. It sets your timing. When to work, when to serve, when to marry, when to have the difficult conversation, when to confront, when to forgive, when to show mercy, when to give correction. Your heavenly Father knows all these things. It's a modern-day tragedy, really, that technology and the busyness of life has overtaken our ability to listen to the Father. That the average, even among pastors, even with your pastor, this is confession, not denouncing the works of others, are so easily distracted from the priority of listening to God first, seeking His rules so that I may live, seeking His rules so that I may know what life means, seeking His righteousness and storing up His Word in my heart so that I might not sin against Him. That's what Jesus was doing. How much more should I do that? The most amazing thing about the Scriptures and this relates to the humanity of Jesus. His deity is always the same, but His humanity was genuine, meaning it had a specific starting point. When He was conceived, it was a genuine humanity that did not pretend to be a baby in the manger. It was the kind of humanity that thirsted and grew hungry and needed rest at the end of the day. It was the kind of humanity that could be tempted to sin and yet, in obedience to God, refuse to sin and trust Him instead. It was even the kind of humanity that could be mistreated by Roman soldiers and bleed and die on a cross. He was that human. And part of what the Scriptures meant to Jesus is simply this, it made Him grow. Luke 2.52 tells me that. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Wow. Number one Bible reading tip I'm always telling you is read how? Slowly. 
He increased in wisdom. Does that surprise you? See, really, we, when we think of Jesus, I really do think that's why Dr. Russell asked the question. We see God, certainly that part is clear because of who He says He is and the things He does that only God can do. In our day, probably what is getting short shrift in our understanding of Jesus among Christians is not His deity, but His humanity. Perfect, sinless humanity. A perfect human nature, unstained by the fall of sin. Jesus lived in the midst of it and felt the effects of it, but not from within, because He was human, a human being as God made the first human beings, perfect and sinless. He was the second Adam, as the rest of Scripture tells us. The first Adam fell into sin and broke our fellowship with God. This Adam, the second Adam, embraces every single word of God. And because He gave the Scriptures priority and because they set His timing in His humanity, even this amazing thing happened. He grew. The Bible tells me so, even though I have a hard time getting my mind around it. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man so that when Jesus begins His public ministry, Preceded by his baptism, the Father speaks from heaven and says what? Do you remember if you've read it? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Where did it start? It started with what you hold in your hands and you've read on the screen. It started with the Scriptures. You see, folks, Jesus knew the importance of the Word. He said in John 17, 17, just before dying, praying for His disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Jesus prayed for the disciples, Father, set them apart in Your truth. They are going into a murderous, hateful world. We're living in the middle of it now. Think about the fact that to, of what's going to occupy our church's evenings for two nights this week, opiate addiction and human trafficking. It doesn't get any more heartbreaking than that. To be overtaken by a drug that literally changes your brain and fundamentally changes who you are until you're sober again, that makes you so dependent that you act and think and behave in ways that you never imagined possible, and to live in a world that traffics with human beings, this has so little regard for life that it's easily taken in the womb, and once children are born into the world, they are often preyed upon by depraved men. Oh my goodness, what a world we live in. So what did Jesus pray for His disciples? He said to His Father, sanctify them in the truth. Here's the key. Your word is truth. I read recently that a professor at the University of Chicago, one of the greatest universities in our nation, asked his class of undergraduates who had managed to get admitted to the University of Chicago, which is right up there with the Ivies, to name an evil person in the world. They could not. They couldn't come up with an evil person. Why? Because the very idea of good and evil is being eradicated. It's all shades of gray. It's all personal preference. God knows better than that. Where do you find such categories? Where do you find such simple truths, such divine wisdom? In the Word of God. My question 
for us to motivate and fuel our week and your early morning tomorrow. If Jesus gave this sort of importance to the Scripture, what should it mean to us? I should seek it like my food. I should seek it like my, I should seek it like water. I should seek it because I need it to live. Because, friends, the work of God is never separated from the Word of God. God will speak to you tomorrow morning if you'll take time to listen. He will. He will awake quietly in His written Word. His Holy Spirit, who gave you new life, the third person of the Trinity, may even prompt you and invite you to open that Bible. To not leave it there, to search for it next Sunday morning. But to open it. And in all your frailty, and all your humanity, fallen and stained by sin, broken by regret, filled with indecision, tormented by fears, assaulted on every side by uncertainty, haunted by desires that you know very well are not from your best nature and certainly not from your heavenly Father, He will bid you to come and listen. If you'll, do, if you'll do with the Scriptures what Jesus did as your example, if you'll give them priority, if you will invite God and His wisdom to set your timing, and if you'll invite your Father to help you grow by His Word, you will because His work in us has never separated from His Word to us. My invitation to you this week is to be different. To understand that on the phone every five minutes is no way to live. That your first attentive moments of the day, whether that's very early in the morning or later in the day when you're fully awake and you have a little space of quiet, your best moments will be to take Jesus as your example. Here's the good news. Here's the grace. Every time I don't follow Jesus as my example, He's my substitute. I'm not earning this salvation. I'm enjoying what He died to give me. If you're overwhelmed by guilt because your Bible remains closed day by day and that guilt pushes you further away from God and makes you quit, that's not your Heavenly Father speaking. That's just one more deceit to keep you away from the Word of God. Wherever you are, start fresh today. Take the Bible as I intend to do and don't do nearly often enough and sit down with the child if you still have one at home and say, buddy, Sweetie, I heard a verse today in church that helped me. I want to read it to you. I want it to explain it to you, and I want to pray with you. Take three minutes to do that. Dads, grandparents, foster parents, guardians, give it priority. Let it guide you. Let it set your timing. Let it make you grow so that the full work of God can be done in you through His Word. Can we agree on that, that tomorrow will be different? Let's pray. Lord, give us your grace. Help us not to run ahead of you. Help us not to run on without you. Help us to listen as Jesus listened. My, my understanding is too stretched, really, to know how to understand it properly. Lord Jesus, to be my substitute and my example, you grew in wisdom. Amazing. Thank you.
how much more do I need wisdom and your character and your truth as I make my way through this tough, confusing, conflicted life? Help us not, Lord, to suffer in silence and suffer in ignorance because we do not take time for your word. And thank you most of all when I fail to follow your example. You are always my substitute and my covering to cover that sin with your perfect obedience. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that's my final and best word for you. He's not just an example. He's a substitute. He's a covering. He takes your indifference, your disobedience to the Word of God, and He covers it with His own perfect obedience, with His devout attention. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, call out to Him right now and say, God, I'm so sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Give me your Son as my Savior instead. Cover my sins. Forgive me, please, Father. In the name of Jesus, I'll take His death on the cross and His resurrection as my life to cover and save my own. If you do that this morning, I pray that you'll let us know on the card. Lord, as we conclude our service in worship and giving and even the simple act of gathering a little information of where people will be attending service and others that will be willing to serve in it, do everything, Lord, for your glory and thank you for your grace that covers us. In Jesus' name, amen.